Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Uh, well, our text this week is really a continuation uh, of our text last week, and, and we're looking at Philippians chapter 3. We started last week with verses 1 through 3. This morning we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 4, and what we saw last week is that Paul began to warn the Philippians of an imminent threat coming to the church at Philippi. It was a group called the Judaizers. And who were they? They were a group of ethnically Jewish, professing Christians who followed Paul around. They came to the churches that Paul taught at, usually after he was gone, and they attempted to convince the believers there that to truly be saved, they need not only believe in Jesus, but also submit themselves to the Mosaic law, to circumcision and obeying the ceremonies of the law. We saw last week that one of the most evident and basic things that the Judaizers were teaching was that the men must be circumcised to be saved. I mean, after all, they said, didn't everyone in the Old Testament need to be circumcised, to be a part of the people of Israel? Paul's answer was clear. If you add circumcision or any work to faith in Christ, you have made Christ's sacrifice null and void. Christ becomes of no value to you if you attempt to add your deeds to his sacrifice. The Christian who has placed their entire faith in Christ is the true circumcision. True Christians place no confidence in the flesh, in Old Testament ceremonies. And and true Christians do not trust in any physical marks to save them. But they trust only in Christ. But that is what the Judaizers were doing. They were trying to take these Gentiles, non-Jews, back to the law. They were trying to resubmit them under the law of Moses. They were trying to add works to the work of Christ. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he has no patience for this type of false teaching. His most uh, harsh language is reserved for these types of false teachers in the book of Galatians. What we saw last week in verses 1 through 3 was simply the very beginning of Paul's argument against their teaching. This week in our text, we are going to see Paul beat the Judaizers at their own game and embarrass them by their own standards. And so here's what we're going to see this morning in our text. Here's the basic breakdown. First, Paul is going to show us his ability to trust in the flesh. Then he's going to give us his reasons why he trusts in Christ instead of trusting in the flesh. And then he's going to show us what that results in in his life. That's the basic breakdown. Another way to say it maybe is, first Paul's going to show us uh, why he he could trust in the flesh, why he trusts Christ instead, and how that impacts his life. What that looks like for him. And for us today, we're going to see this by reflection. We're going to see what it might look like in our lives to trust in in the flesh, why we should trust in Christ and what result that should have in our lives. So with that, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, 
And we're going to start right in with, with Paul's reasons for trusting in the flesh. And ultimately, his conclusion is going to be that it's foolish. It's foolish. But what he's going to do here is he's going to play their game for a minute. He's going to say to the Judaizers, okay, you want to play the game of confidence in the flesh? Let me show you why I have even more than you. Let's, let's read verses 1 through 6 to get the context. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see what Paul's doing here? He's playing their game for a minute. He's he's saying, okay, you think you're so holy and Jewish. You want to go there? Okay, let's do it. I'm more Jewish and more holy than you are, according to your standards. He says, you want to stack up Jewish credentials? I have more than you. And I I have more reasons to have confidence in the flesh than you. And so Paul here lays out his Jewish resume. And here's how it breaks down. He gives seven reasons for his confidence in the flesh. The first four are reasons of pedigree. In other words, kind of things he didn't choose. He was born in this family. He was born this way. The, the, thir- the next three reasons are based on his performance. Things that he does. Four reasons of pedigree. Three of performance. And his conclusion at the end is that it's all worthless compared to Christ. In other words, God is not impressed with any of it. So let's, let's look at his first. His, his first reason in his pedigree, right? His, his upbringing. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confident in the flesh, I have more. First thing, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, now Paul starts with circumcision for an obvious reason. This was where the debate was circling around. Now think about it. These Judaizers, when they would come into Paul's churches... They had to discredit Paul somehow. Now, you, you, it'd be like if someone came into OVBC trying to teach something different than Rob was teaching, they'd first have to discredit Rob in your eyes somehow. So the Judaizers did the same thing to Paul. What we might have guessed is that maybe they were saying Paul's not really circumcised. Maybe they were saying that, that Paul's not as Jewish as he makes out to be. We're the real Jews, and so you should trust what we have to say. They could even say something like, well, no wonder Paul's downplaying circumcision. He's not circumcised. Get the picture. What the Judaizers are doing is trying to discredit Paul's ministry. They were trying to sow seeds of doubt among his churches that he was really an apostle of Christ. And so here, Paul assures everyone, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this is the eighth day is just the prescribed method according to Genesis 17.12, which reads, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So Paul says here, when it comes to circumcision, not only am I circumcised, but I was circumcised according to the exact specifications of the law. So that's his, his first credential. His second is this, 
of the people of Israel. Well, what Paul's saying here is that he's an ethnic Jew. In other words, he's not a Gentile. He's not, a, he's not someone who was converted to Judaism. He was born a Jew. He is physically descended from Abraham. That's his second reason. The third is of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only was Paul descended from Abraham, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. You remember there was 12 tribes of Israel. And every Jew would trace their, their genealogy back to which tribe they came from. Paul was from Benjamin. This is significant. Benjamin was the favorite son of the patriarch Jacob. Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land. And you might remember that the very first king of Israel, King Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin, who, by the way, Paul was named after. But most importantly, Benjamin was part of the remnant that remained faithful when the ten northern tribes all apostatized. They stayed loyal to the house of David. And so as far as tribes go, being from the the tribe of Benjamin was one of the highest and most honorable tribes to the Jews. So Paul says, not only was I born a Jew, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's his third reason. His fourth is this, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now this is kind of a strange phrase. What does it mean? Well, essentially what it means is that Paul came from a very conservative Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking Jewish family. You see, during this time, there was, there was really two groups of Jews. There was Jews, the, now the Greeks ruled over the Jews before the Romans came, and there was some Jews who hunkered down in their Jewishness and embraced all of the laws and embraced their Jewishness and did the best they could to stay out of the culture. There was another group of Jews that tried to hide their Jewishness, and embraced the Greek culture. Paul says, I was not one of those, neither was my family. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I didn't grow up speaking Greek. I grew up speaking Aramaic. They were, they, he was from a conservative family who practiced the Jewish faith. He wasn't from a family of compromisers, but a pure Jewish family. And so as far as pedigree goes, you literally could not get more Jewish than Paul. Even just based on this, he probably had the Judaizers beat at their own game. But he takes it further. You see, his, his pedigree, this is not, none of these things were things that he chose. This is just kind of how he was born. But he takes it a step further. You see, the next three reasons he gives are all based on his performance, based on his actions, based on things he chose. These reasons were reasons he could have more confidence in the flesh than anyone. The first one he says is, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, if you've read the New Testament before, that word probably sounds familiar. These were the guys that Jesus was always trashing in the Gospels. These were Jesus' opponents. Paul was one of them. He was a Pharisee. They were a sect of Judaism that was the most conservative, the strictest, the the most Bible-believing, so to speak. The the very word Pharisee comes from the Aramaic word, the Aramaic word to be separated. They separated themselves from the people in order to be fully devoted to following the law. Their entire life was structured around being obedient to the law, so much so that they even tithed on the spices that they bought. They were obsessed with purity. They they were the spiritual elites in their day. Paul says this in Acts 22 as part of his testimony. 
He says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now that gives us some insight too. Gamaliel was the leading Pharisee of the day. And Paul trained under his feet. You you get the picture. Paul's not just an average guy. Paul was at the top of the Jewish game. He was an elite Pharisee, trained by the elite Pharisee scholar. His entire life was devoted to following the law. This was his identity. Down to the strictest detail. You can get to get a picture of why God chose Paul specifically to do what he needed to do. So that's his first reason of performance is he was a Pharisee. The second, he says this, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul's saying here, not only was I a Pharisee, not only did I follow the law down to the strictest detail, but I was so zealous for the Jewish religion and the purity of it that I persecuted the Christian church when it came about. He, he had such an intense passion for the purity of Judaism that he attempted to completely destroy the church when it was founded because he thought it was a heretical cult. In Galatians, Paul describes his life as a Pharisee. He uses, listen to the words he uses. He says, For you have heard of my formal, former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and tried to destroy it. This man who wrote so much of our New Testament violently tried to destroy the church. He was so passionate that he was violent. He hated Christians. He hated them. In fact, when Stephen, the very first Christian to die for his faith in the book of Acts, was on trial, Paul was there. The book of Acts tells us that as they drug Stephen out of the city, as they threw him in a pit, Paul was there. As the men picked up large boulders and hurled them down on Stephen, crushing his skull and breaking his bones, murdering him, Paul stood by and approved of what they were doing. He thought this was the work of God to kill these heretics. Acts chapter 7 describes this instance. It says this. In this text, it's Saul is his name. It says this. Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Look at this next sentence. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Listen to this. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
his life was devoted to destroying the church. He ravaged the church, it said, committed violence against Christians, all in the name of God, because he was so passionate for the law. The Christians knew who he was. In Acts chapter 9, when, when God saves Paul, and he tells Ananias, that, hey, there's this guy, Saul, coming to your house to, to stay. Ananias is like, uh, you know who that is, right? Like, I don't want him at my house. He was well known for persecuting church. Not only was he a Pharisee, he spent his days putting down what are his mind, these heretical cults. But he's not finished. Not only was he a Pharisee, not only was he a persecutor of the church. Look what he says, the third thing. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. In other words, in regards to the law, Paul had no outstanding guilt from a Jewish perspective. He he says, I followed every law. When I sinned, I offered the appropriate sacrifice. So he's not saying he's perfect, but he's saying, under the law, there is nothing to condemn me. He had no sin he had not dealt with. If you were to look at his life and look at the law, there was, not, there was nothing you could accuse him of breaking. See, according to his pedigree and his performance, Paul says, I had more reason for confidence in that than anyone. I was more obedient and I had a better upbringing than anyone. And before he came into contact with Jesus... On the road to Damascus, he thought he was doing just great. He thought God was pleased with him. He thought he was doing God's work. He thought that in the eyes of God, he was blameless. He took pride in all of his accomplishments. He took pride in his upbringing. But let's be honest. Many people today are doing the exact same thing. They're they're trusting in, in their upbringing and their performance as well. Maybe some of you here are doing that this morning. I don't know. You think that when you come before God on the last day, it's going to be your good deeds that God's going to see and be impressed. It's going to be your good upbringing that God will consider. But it's not. Listen to what Paul says. I mean, think about it. When you think about your eternal destiny, heaven or hell, salvation or condemnation, where, where do you think you stand and why? If any of it has to do with things you've done, or your parents, or your grandparents, or who they were, you're, you're being just like the Apostle Paul before he knew Christ. Do you ever think these things? Well, I mean, my dad was a pastor, or, or my parents were missionaries, or I was brought up in a good Christian home, so that should give me some credit with God. It doesn't. Before the judgment seat of God, this is all useless. Your pedigree and your performance get you zero points. Before God, you're not going to be saved because of who your family was. And you're not going to be saved because of your performance. Well, I go to church every Sunday. I believe the Bible is God's word. I, I try my best to be good. I'm not as bad as that guy. I, I tithe regularly. I prayed a prayer once to receive Jesus. I was baptized. I volunteered church. These things are all measures of performance. They're good in and of themselves, but they gain us no credit before God. Are you trusting in any of these things? Are you thinking that any of these get you any credit? Are you placing any of your confidence in these fleshly measures? Paul says you must not trust any of these. Let me ask you again. When you think of your standing before God on Judgment Day, where is your confidence? 
Where is your trust? It can't be in your upbringing and it can't be in your performance. Neither of those gain you anything. In fact, they condemn you. That brings up the question, what what can you trust and where should your confidence be? And Paul goes there next. And the answer is this, it must be in Christ alone. You see, he played with the Judaizers. He says, you want to compare Jewish credentials? You want to see who has done more for God according to Jewish standards? And he beats them by a long shot. But look what he does next. Look at verse 7. Look what he says. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul used to have confidence in the flesh. He used to have confidence in his pedigree and his upbringing. He used to think that his good deeds had earned him something before God. But when he met Jesus, everything changed. His entire life turned upside down. He now considers all of that that he just listed useless. In fact, it's worse, worse than useless. It's, it's loss. It's a disadvantage. Compared to Christ, he says, my pedigree, my works, they're, they're loss. But not only that is loss, he says in verse 8, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything is loss. Everything Paul counts everything as loss. Everything's a liability because knowing Jesus Christ is of such incomparable value. See, upon coming to faith in Christ, the entire value system of Paul's life changed. It got turned completely on its head. What he had had confidence in, what he valued, changed entirely. Jesus became everything. It wasn't Paul's old life and just add some Jesus on top. It was literally throw everything in the garbage. My entire life, everything that I trusted in is now useless to me. His entire confidence was placed in Christ. He he put all his chips on Christ. He put all of his eggs into the basket of Christ. He put all of his stock in Christ. And he rejoiced. And and look at the terminology he uses there in verse 8. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, if you've read a lot of the Apostle Paul, this is striking language. Paul never anywhere in the New Testament says, my Lord, except here. He always says, our Lord. He always uses corporate language. This is the only place he uses this personal title. One commentator puts it this way. He says, here and here alone in his writings do we find the intensely personal Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it would be a dull reader who did not mark the warm and deep devotion which breathes through every phrase. 
See, Paul is overwhelmed with the surpassing worth of Christ. The reason he's willing to throw everything in the garbage for Jesus is because to Paul, Jesus is not just a concept. He's not just a savior. He's not just a God. He is mine. He's my Lord. Paul knows him. And that's the wonder and mystery of the gospel. God is not just saving people so that we can go to heaven and play golf all day or maybe soccer. He saves us to be his people. In the book of Revelation, we find the phrase repeated, I will be their God and they will be my people. God God saved you so that you could dwell with him and so that he could dwell with you. It's a relationship. God saved you so that you could cry out, my Lord and my God, like Thomas. He sent his spirit into you so that you could cry out, Abba, Father. It's not just a concept. Martin Luther said, the entire Christian life is is summed up in possessive pronouns. My Jesus, my Lord. And when you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, Everything else is garbage in comparison. Paul says in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And this too is a striking statement. You see, it's not just that Paul lost everything. Now remember, he lost his entire life. His entire career, his entire life was his identity in Judaism. He lost all that when he became a Christian. But it's not as if he mourned over that. He didn't say, well, I lost that, and it's awful, but eh, at least I get Jesus. He says, to me now, it's rubbish. And this word rubbish, it literally means crap. It means trash, garbage, dung. It's an extreme word. And what he's saying is that the way he views his old life now, it looks like a big pile of crap. It's disgusting. It's offensive. It's something that needs to be flushed down the toilet. It's something that you wouldn't pick up without gloves. It's filth. So it's not just that he, well, I guess I'll I'll set this down so I can get Christ. It's like, no, I don't want that. It's filth. What, What this means is that the call to repentance is not just to turn from our sin, but to turn from our good works as well. It's to turn from from everything that we're placing our confidence in. That's not Jesus. We repent from trusting our own performance thinking that that might be good enough. And this may seem strange until you see where Paul's going. Why does he now treat his pedigree and his performance as a big steaming pile of garbage? Well, he tells us. He says, that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in Christ, and that I might know Christ. He says that I might gain Christ in in verse 8. He says, in order to gain Christ, in, in order to be in Christ, in order to have salvation in Christ, you can't trust in anything else. It's not Jesus plus something. It's, it's only Jesus. You have to forsake everything. You have to gather up your good works, gather up your pedigree, gather up everything and just throw them into the garbage. You have to consider all of your best behavior and your performance as trash compared to Christ. Like the song says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the picture. We come to Jesus saying, I have nothing to offer. I have no good works to offer. I have no obedience to offer. I have my pedigrees garbage, but I trust in you. I cast myself upon your mercy. Because salvation is by grace 
alone. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. We bring nothing. In fact, we bring sin and garbage to the equation. Paul wants to gain Christ, and to do this, he counts his life as garbage. But what Paul says next is even more radical. You see, by rejecting his own works righteousness and throwing it in the garbage, Paul says he obtained the righteousness of Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, And be found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you hear that? The person who rejects their own good works and simply trusts in Christ, in Christ doesn't only receive forgiveness, but the very righteousness of Christ himself. Through faith, God gives us, credits to us, the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ. We stand before God with the perfect obedience of Christ credited to our account. That's why Paul says throughout his letters, we're in Christ. This is why Paul threw his righteousness in the garbage, because compared to Christ, it's garbage. He says, I'd rather, I don't want my righteousness according to the law. I want the righteousness that comes from God through faith. And that's what's so radical about the gospel. You see, until Paul came into contact with Christ, he thought he was fine. In fact, he thought he was better than fine. He thought he was at the top of the game. He thought he was blameless in the eyes of the law and by extension in the eyes of God. He thought he was the top dog, the most holy. But when Paul came into contact with Christ, he, all of that fell away and he saw himself for the sinner that he truly was. He went from being blameless under the law to calling himself the chief of sinners. All of the righteousness that he had spent his life pursuing, he now saw as filthy garbage, offensive. And, and this is why Jesus was such a polarizing figure. Those who saw themselves as sinners in need of a Savior loved Jesus. But those who saw themselves as righteous hated him because he exposed the absolute foolishness of their righteousness and the hollowness of their supposed righteousness. And this presents a choice for all of humanity. Before the throne of God, you, you can only stand on one of two things, either your own righteousness or on Christ's righteousness. You can only place yourself in... in your faith in yourself or in Christ. And only those who stand in Christ's righteousness gain eternal life because we need perfect righteousness to gain eternal life. And that's the beautiful exchange. That's what the church fathers called the great exchange. Jesus lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed God at all times. And on the cross, he bore the penalty for the sins of his people. And when you place your faith in Christ, you trust in him, bringing nothing to the table, your sin is credited to his account and his righteous obedience is credited to yours. That's amazing. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, not based on our performance and not based on our upbringing, based on faith in Christ. The Puritan William Gurnall put it this way, he says, faith has two hands. With one hand, it pulls off its own righteousness and throws it away. And with the other, it puts on Christ's righteousness. That's exactly the picture. But we so often forget it. We're so quick to act as if our salvation is dependent on our performance. But that's not the gospel. 
That's what Satan will try to tell you because he hates the gospel. But Christ's work is sufficient for you. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. And if your faith is in Christ, you will be found in Him. And finally, the third reason that Paul has counted his performance and pedigree as garbage, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This text is simple yet profoundly deep. Simply put, what he's saying is the one who gains Christ desires to be like Christ. In every area of life, true faith in Christ changes you. It changed Paul's life. It turned his life upside down. You want to know Christ now. You you want to experience his resurrection power, the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to suffer like him. You want to be like Jesus. And Paul says in verse 11, you want this by any means. You're in no matter what. You're all in for Christ. Paul considers everything is garbage compared to Christ. Everything. Let us count our sins, our good deeds, and everything as well as trash compared to the righteousness of Christ. Why? That we might gain Him. That we will be found in Him and that we will know Him. And finally, the result in Paul's life. So, so you, you get this. You say, I get it. I'm with Paul. My faith is in Christ. Even though I mess up sometimes, even though I struggle, I'm all in for Jesus. My faith is in him. I'm not trusting in my works. Well, what now? Paul answers this in verse 12 through 14. And his answer is basically, run with everything you have towards Jesus. Spend your entire life for Christ. Look what he says in verse 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, I'm not perfect. I haven't, I haven't made it yet. I haven't arrived But because Jesus holds me, I run with everything I have. You see that? If your faith is in Christ, this is is your mission statement for life. Strain forward with everything you have. Press on toward the goal until you get there. Run as hard as you can towards Jesus. Expend all of your energy following Christ. Don't waste your time looking at the past. Look forward and go. Keep your eyes on Christ and run the race. Give all of your energy, all of your effort to knowing Christ and making him known in the world. Trust in Christ and press forward. This is the correct response to faith in Christ. Give all of your energy, all of your effort to knowing Christ and making him known in the world. And don't stop until you're dead. Why? Paul says Jesus is worth it. He's taken hold of me. What else could I do? The world needs to hear the gospel. We need to trust in Christ and press on. Keep going. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter where you are in your faith, keep your eyes on Jesus and move forward. Every day, people all around the world are dying in their sin. So many are grasping and hoping in their own righteousness 
before God. Maybe you are this morning, but it's a fool's errand. We need to tell people about the righteousness available in Christ through faith. We need to spread this message, whether it's by going ourselves or sending money to support it. So in conclusion this morning, I ask you, where where is your confidence? Is it in Christ or is it in yourself? Or have you conjured up some sort of mix of both? That won't work. I urge you today to place your faith solely in Christ. Throw everything else in the garbage. Turn from your sin. Turn from your supposed good works. Turn from your performance. Put your faith in Christ. He is a sufficient Savior. Don't leave here this morning standing on the shifting sand of your own righteousness. Leave this morning standing in the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith. I'd like to end by reading the lyrics to a song called Not In Me. And it's the perfect conclusion because it sums up this text. It has three verses. Listen what it says. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' debt. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we simply stand in awe of that truth that you are merciful to us and merciful to us in Christ alone. Father, I pray that this morning, if there's any here who are trusting in their performance or their pedigree, Father, would you expose that? Father, for everyone here, would you give us more faith in Christ? And Father, would you continue to reveal the depth of the glory of your goodness to us? Father, we thank you for your love for us while we were enemies. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.